Hey, Jay, how often do you read books? All the time, man. All the time. So what's the name of the book you're currently reading? Ah, you got me. I don't read. <laughs> All right, let me ask you an easier question. What was the name of the last book you read? Okay, the last book I actually read cover to cover was Banking on America, How TD Bank Rose to the Top and Took on the USA. I really thought it was going to be just a story about the bank and its history, which it was, but it was told through the collective stories of people. It was really a character-driven story, which made it a real page-turner and far more personal than I expected. I really enjoyed Howard's writing style, so I decided to pick up his next release, Railroader. I assume it's about planes. You would think so, but it's actually about Hunter Harrison, the former CEO of four of the largest railroads in North America. Again, sounds very straightforward. It's anything but. Really think about it. There are about seven to eight massive railroads in North America, and he's been CEO of four of them. That's like the CEO of TD Bank going on to become the CEO of RBC, then CIBC, then Scotiabank, then BMO. It's already hard enough just to be one. Again, though, it was a story about people, in particular Hunter Harrison. And I love reading that story too. Hunter was a controversial dude. You either respected and loved him, or you hated his guts. Either way, you cannot discount the impact that that man made on the railroad industry. So, how about we get three-time best-selling author and former BNN journalist and co-founder Howard Green to discuss the book on Hunter Harrison with us in depth. I'm down. My name is Prakash. My name is Ajay. And this is the Real Talk Roundtable. Welcome to the Real Talk Roundtable. With us today, we have Mr. Howard Green. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Prakash. Uh, for those who don't know, Howard Green is an author and moderator who spent more than three decades in broadcasting. In January 2013, Howard released his first book, Banking on America, How TD Bank Rose to the Top and Took on the USA. It was an immediate bestseller and was released in the United States in paperback in May 2014. Full disclosure, Jay and I currently work at TD, and we read the book, and that's what sparked our curiosity, uh, to reach out to Mr. Green um, and kind of learn more about his other books. Uh, alongside Charles Bronfman, Howard co-authored a second book, Distilled, a memoir of family, Seagram, baseball, and philanthropy, published in October 2016. It was a global mail and Toronto bestseller, as well as an instant bestseller on Amazon. Quite accomplished. I'd say it's pretty, pretty impressive. In 2017, Distilled was named a finalist on the National Business Book Award. And lastly, in September 2018, Howard's third book, Railroader, The Unfiltered Genius and Controversy for four-time CEO Hunter Harrison, was published and became an immediate number one national bestseller. I think that's more than just okay. Yeah, pretty happy about yeah. that. <laughs> that was a nice thing to wake up to that day. I can imagine it was. <laughs> yeah, well, we haven't wrote our best-selling books yet, so we don't know. Oh, Can't... well, I'm, I'm, I'll be there to buy them. Yeah? yeah. 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 Uh, for those who would like to buy it, Railroader is now available for purchase on Amazon, Indigo, or Barnes & Noble. Or independent booksellers. I figured I should that, give them a shout yeah, out. I was going to say, support our local bookstore sellers. Yeah. My concern is I wouldn't want to say that and, and then be like, no, 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 it's just in the mainstream. <laughs> yeah, so, um, maybe to start off, for those who don't know, who is Hunter Harrison in your own words? Well, Hunter was probably the most successful, and as I say in the, in the title, most controversial railroad CEO of the modern era, you know, really of my lifetime, you know, maybe of the century. Uh, he, he ran four railroads, uh, and we're talking major companies. So when you think about it, how many people can you think of who were CEO four times, first of all? 
I can think of zero. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've thought about this a lot, and I can't. <laughs> but uh, he ran four different publicly traded companies. And he did not get going in the business the way a lot of managers and CEOs do these days via an MBA at, uh, you know, an Ivy League school or anything like, like that. He was a tough kid uh, growing up in Memphis, Tennessee. He was the son of a cop, a frustrated man, and uh, his dad really uh, was um, often disappointed with young Hunter as a, as a teenager. They came to blows. Uh, and, you know, Hunter, in his own words, uh, said that uh, if there was ever a juvenile delinquent, it was me. You know, he was a bad kid. And uh, he didn't really smarten up until he got a job working on the railroad when he was 19 in Memphis. And that first job was pouring the oil into the axles of the wheels of boxcars. So it wasn't exactly an Ivy League MBA school. He started at the bottom, covered in grease and grime. He'd come home every night, and Jeannie, his wife, they got married when they were teenagers. She had their first child when she was a few weeks shy of her 17th birthday. They were married more than 50 years. Actually, they got divorced okay. once and, yeah. and remarried. So there's a love story in there, too. But she said, you know, she used to insist that he strip off his clothes when he, when he came home from work because he was so covered in grease and oil. That's how he started. Oh, wow. But he had an incredible mind, of a questioning mind. And, you know, whether you go to business school or not, you need a questioning mind if you're going to reach the kind of heights that Hunter Harrison did, running for publicly traded companies. You know, I think he probably asked why more than anybody <laughs> I've ever met. He just, he, you know, he was always trying to figure out things for himself and put things together. Very, very smart. He was, you know, somebody said, you know, he didn't have a university education, but he was usually the smartest guy in the room because, you know, he could read people, he had a questioning mind and so forth, and, and he applied that questioning mind to the railroad where he started to work as a young man, as a laborer. And he could see how these giant networks could uh, operate almost in three dimensions. You know, he talked about playing high-level checkers. And he could do it better than anybody. He would just had almost a pre, uh, you, know, um, you know, some sort of cosmic um, skill at doing that better than others. And it got him noticed, got him noticed by the higher-ups at the railroad. At that time, that railroad was called Frisco, St. Louis and San Francisco Railroad. It was bought by Burlington Northern in 1980. And then when he was at Burlington Northern, uh, you know, he really started to move up the ladder and got into vice presidential ranks. And, but uh, was, was just an amazing operator of these complex and in some ways archaic networks that are vital to the economy of this continent, and others, in fact, but I, I really only deal with the ones here. Uh, so, uh, you know, this was a guy who ran railroads better than anybody else. A highly, highly polarizing figure, however, extremely successful, but highly polarizing. Because he was rough, and he was tough, and he was demanding, and he was kind of in your face, and he was, the kind of person who never backed down from a fight, um, 
you know, as I said to somebody, there's thunder and lightning everywhere he went. <laughs> so it was a great story, you know. And he did it until two days before he died, which is, you know, a whole other remarkable level to the Hunter Harrison story. He was running big U.S. railroad, CSX. He was very ill the last year or so of his life, but he was running it while he was plugged into an oxygen machine. And he was put on medical leave two days before he passed away. But, he, you know, he increased shareholder value at all of these companies by orders of magnitude. He made himself a lot of money. He made shareholders a lot of money. There were railroaders who said, you know, hey, I put my kids through college. I built myself a new house because I own stock in these railroads. And then there were other people who were let go by him. Uh, so uh, that speaks to the polarization of... Uh, you know, views about Hunter Harrison. So I'm giving you a long answer. Yeah, no, I, Hunter <laughs> Harrison. That's who Hunter Harrison. Well, honestly, I think it does justice for a person of Hunter Harrison's <laughs> magnitude to yeah. not answer in just two sentences. As you said, you you did butt heads, and yeah. while granted you have success in your own right, you've walked two very different paths in life. So maybe help us understand how your path and Hunter's crossed, and how that turned into a book. Totally different paths. Absolutely. You know. Totally different countries. Uh, totally different countries. You know, I, you know, I'm a, a kid from Halifax. <laughs> he was a kid from Memphis. You know, I, I, but he knew Elvis. I did not know Elvis. <laughs> 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 I like Elvis. Hunter did not like Elvis. <laughs> so we could have, you know, he could have been from Jupiter and I was from Mars. You know, the likelihood of us running into each other was, was low. But... Uh, you know, I used to host an interview program at BNN for a long time. And when he was at CN, he was a guest. He was, became a regular guest. And we kind of enjoyed talking to each other. And, uh, you know, I had him come to Toronto for his exit interview when he left CN in 2009. We stayed in touch. Uh, he would take my calls, um, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, whatever. And, and, then, and then when um, Bill Ackman, the big activist shareholder... Pershing Square. Pershing Square, hedge fund guy in the United States, uh, started to buy CP and, you know, targeted CP. Uh, and then ultimately there was a big proxy battle and it was headline news here. And he wanted to bring Hunter out of retirement to replace the, the CEO at CP. You know, we, we started to talk more frequently... And then, you know, he would come on the show during the proxy fight to make their argument. And then he ended up running CP. It was the third one he ran, and he turned that around. He had made CN the most efficient in North America after making Illinois Central the most efficient. Then he made CP the most efficient. And then as, as he started to get through the tenure at CP, um, he contacted me through his people and said, well, you know, Howard, you know, maybe there's a book in, in Hunter's story. And, uh, you know, I'd kind of had it in the back of my mind after doing the book on TD, Banking on America, that you mentioned in the intro, that, you know, Hunter was a pretty interesting cat. And, you know, this railroad business was pretty interesting, and this proxy fight was pretty interesting, and... You know, pretty colorful, and maybe there's a book. So I was kind of mulling that notion, although not, I hadn't made any serious approaches or anything. But when I was approached about it in the summer of 2014, shortly after I left BNN, um, I'd already um, committed to work with Charles Bronfman, of former 
formerly of Seagram, on, on his memoir, and I couldn't uh, write two books at once, which actually was very fortunate. Hunter was really only three quarters of the way through his story. But we re-engaged uh, in, I think it was April or May of 2016. I went down to his farm in Connecticut in May of 16, and we just started to talk again. And he was not feeling that well. He was still running CP, but uh, Canadian Pacific, for those who don't know these initials, CN, Canadian National, CP, Canadian Pacific. Uh, maybe just at that point, we can go over the timeline very quickly. So yeah. it was Illinois Central first. That's right. That he was CEO of. And that was after he had risen up the ranks in Burlington North. That's right. He, he'd kind of um, worn out his welcome at Burlington Northern. This is a, almost a recurring story with Hunter. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, amazing at what he did, but uh, he made a lot of enemies. You know, he, um, he was one of those people who was very willing to be unpopular to do, what needs to, to, to do what he thought needed to be done, what he thought the right thing was. The end justifies the means. Yeah, and, okay. and uh, on the other hand, he would get very bruised when people would... Take it the wrong way. You know, take, well, or, or criticize him for it. Uh, you know, he, um, he bruised easily, which was kind of ironic because he was, you know, very willing to be pugilistic. To your question, Jane, you know, we were worlds apart, but somehow, um, you know, we, we were able to communicate. And he trusted me to hear him out. Uh, he needed to talk. He was one of those people that needed to tell his story. He needed to be understood. Yeah. He, he felt he was misunderstood in certain levels. And, and, you know, I had to dig deep, and I had to go to a lot of sensitive spots for him, and thus the arguments that we had, some arguments that we had, or, uh, you know, to, to flesh these things out. But, but ultimately, um, you know, as I said at this event in Memphis, uh, you know, you never know who you're going to meet in life. And I could never have predicted I was going to meet a guy like Hunter Harrison, probably like, you know, Howard Green was not high on his list. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, we, um, he trusted me. And it's kind of a profound thing, not kind of a f profound thing. It is a profound thing to be trusted with somebody's life story, just as Charles Bronfman did. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a privilege. And, and, and you know, you're, you're trying to write something that's fair and honest and uh, uh, will have an impact. And, and uh, it's, um, you know, it weighs heavily when you do it. You know, it's a big responsibility. And I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm, as I think I said in the uh, intro or um, acknowledgments to the book, uh, to my everlasting regret that he didn't live right. to read the book. Because I know we would have argued about yeah. it. Yeah. He would have argued <laughs> with me about it. You know, you know. As I, I said it at the book, I can say it because people say these words on, on, on air now. But uh, you know, uh, I said at the launch here. You know, uh, I worked on my hunter imitation. I said, you know, yeah. <laughs> Howard. What in the shit did y'all go and write that for? This is a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> and he said it. He said it like nobody else said it. With I mean, two O's. Two. Well, that's how I, I spelled it. Just to, to, you know, in italics to kind of, you know, create the sound for readers because it was a, 
you know, I just had this amazing way of saying it, you know, that it was almost musical. And so, uh, anyways, uh, he's not here. But you know, it's funny. I just, uh, you know, I I, um, I played tennis, as you know, and uh, you know, he was a very good athlete. And uh, you know, I, I said to him once, you know, you've improved my tennis game. He said, what What the hell are you talking about? And uh, I said, well, you know, you said to me, Howard, if it ain't working, try something else. And, and you know, if you can't hit your forehand, well, then hit your backhand, you know. And he applied that kind of thing to railroads, you, you know, and I've gotten off track here, but again, but, um, you know, his philosophy or the philosophy that he articulated at a precision scheduled railroading was a, was a philosophy of continuous improvement. So, you know, if your forehand's not working, try your backhand. Or you know, try a drop shot. You know, move the box car a different way, yeah. and that's um, that's a good lesson. So sometimes when something's not working, I, I hear you that hear voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe it's for people listening. Maybe we can quickly backtrack on his career. So mm-hmm. so he started uh, BN, worked his way to Illinois, got acquired, worked at CN. Yeah, ten years. Ten years. A little over. <laughs> Became yeah. CEO there. Yeah, he was COO first when he went, and then he did this bit in CP. For most people, that you would assume that's the end of it, and then he ended his journey with CSX. As yeah. you mentioned. Well, you know that proxy war was something that I'd covered business in Canada a long time, and I had never ever seen anything like that. I mean, here was here were, you know, it was an American hedge fund, a big American hedge fund. Um, Bill Ackman, the front man, Paul Halal, his partner, who did a lot of the, you know, the the the, the groundwork and research and identifying the opportunity, because um, CP was underperforming, and you know, bringing Hunter Harrison back uh, as the potential CEO, and Hunter, um, you know, he had um, there were a lot of people in Canada didn't like him from his CN days. A lot of people loved him, but a lot of people still didn't like him, and uh, the CP board was Blue Chip Canada. The chairman was the former CEO of Royal Bank, and there were a number of other big name people on that board. CP was a, is a historic Canadian company. I mean, it knit the country together from coast to coast. Uh, Sir John A. Macdonald built the railroad. Um, the Canadian Pacific Railway was built to keep Americans out, and here are two Americans coming back, three Americans coming back, we're gonna you know, show you how to run a railroad. And so uh, it was a huge fight, and they won like sort of 90% to 10%. You know, they 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 thrashed that board in the in the in the in the in the, in the vote, and so it was very very dramatic thing. And the, you know, Ackman started to buy the stock at $46. It was over 300 this week. Wow! It topped 300. And uh, it's, it's, it's staggering, really, what happened to that railroad. Uh, and uh, anyway, and, and as you said, I mean, it wasn't over yet because here he was. He was 70 years old. He'd done it for three, four years, and his health was in decline. What am I going to do next? I hated retirement when, you know, I was done at CN, going out of my mind, pacing the stalls at the horse farm, you know, like a caged beast. Had to get out. Uh, do something again. His wife wanted him out of the house. That was the joke. And um, it's like a bull in a china shop. He was. He was. Yeah. As as this um, 
guy used to write a column from McLean's years ago, Alan Fothering, and wrote the back page. Everybody read it because it was funny and astute, political. He said, you know, he would describe Hunter as a guy, you know, who's a bull who carries his own china shop. (laughs) 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 You know, so anyway, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. railroads were not performing anywhere nearly as well as the Canadian ones. And CP had tried under Hunter to buy Norfolk Southern, or CSX first, didn't work, then tried Norfolk Southern, big, you know, uh, sort of ugly, hostile, public public thing. It didn't work because he didn't care about politics. He didn't care about optics. He thought it was a great idea. People should logically accept it. And they didn't do the lobbying in Washington necessary to secure that in Norfolk Southern. And so they, you know, uh, what do we do? It didn't, you know, they, they weren't going to be able to buy another railroad. So, you know, he, as he would say, they ain't building any more railroads. And, and uh, so you have inefficiencies. You have, uh, you know, a place like Chicago where it takes 30 hours to get a train through because all the railroads converge there. And, and you know, he was all about scheduling and, redu- you, know, you know, making trains run faster, longer trains, um, leaving precisely when they were supposed to rather than in the old days when train, you know, freight trains left whenever the hell the customer would show right. up with the logs. And he'd say, well, you know, if I ran an airline, and we only took point. off when the passengers arrived. We'd never make any money. So that was precision scheduled railroading. And, and so the idea was to take Hunter. Like in each of these cases, it was take Hunter, put him on the property, Get them to institute precision schedule railroading. That's what they did at Illinois Central. That's what happened at CN. That's what happened at Canadian Pacific. And then Ackman's former partner, Paul Halal, who he'd worked with on the CP transaction, set up his own activist hedge fund and said, hey, what if I buy Hunter Harrison out of Canadian Pacific and install him on the property of one of these American railroads? We can make a pant load of money. Anyway, uh, so that was highly dramatic. And he went to CSX, this American Railroad, which basically runs up the east, eastern seaboard from Florida to Canada. Um, if you ever played Monopoly as kids, the B&O Railroad, that's CSX now. And uh, Baltimore and Ohio, that's right, yeah. And a whole bunch of other ones that yeah. got amalgamated. And, you know, he was sick when the... He, you know, he, he was not well. He had a lot of things wrong with him. But he just was one of those people who was, um, he needed to work. He needed the purpose of work. It was the sense of identity, um, you know, money, for sure. It, it, there's this thing in his family, it's a very southern thing, the big daddy. And he was the big daddy, the provider. And he took that role very seriously. And even though the unbelievable properties, horse farms and Bentley and a Porsche and, you know, all this, you know, uh, it, he thought he could do it again. And it was the challenge. And I think the fact that it was a big American railroad. Oh, yeah, you did it in Canada. Well, it's easy in Canada. It's just a big empty company, country with straight lines, you know, the tracks go across, you know, you come to 
you know, the East Coast of the United States, it's a spaghetti network, you know, it's right. dense, and you're not going to be able to get the efficiency. Bullshit. So anyway, uh, uh, and uh, overnight, that stock went up 23%, just on the rumor that he, would be running. that he would be running it. You know, all of a sudden, CSX was worth... Eight billion dollars more overnight. So one hundred eighteen million. Not such a bad price for that, though. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, back it's like, like you know, for mere mortals right. like most of us, it's insane. You know, the kind of money that was paid. But uh, you know, when you when you do the math, okay. So if he made over the course of these four companies, uh, $500 million, say, um, running those four companies. And he created $50 billion in shareholder value. Uh, what's that percentage-wise? 1%. Yeah, so um, I mean, I'm not the one to judge whether that's fair or right. But that's, you know, you can certainly look at it that way. Uh, and arguably, a lot more shareholder value has been created since his death at the end of 2017. I mean, CSX just hitting all-time highs, CP hitting all-time highs, CN hitting all-time highs, and six of the seven Class One railroads that you asked about, Jay, are now pursuing precision schedule railroading. Who's the holdout? Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Irony. <laughs> oh, yeah, I owned by Warren Buffett, no less, yeah. uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Um, so it's, you know, it's an amazing story and uh, uh, very emotional at the end to see him uh, you know, decline like he did. I was with him for three days, about a week and a half before he died. And, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, I use the word again, profound, to see somebody still working while they're plugged into an oxygen machine, giving it their all, and probably knowing they don't have much time left on this earth. And his family had been torn when he made the decision to go to CSX. They understood why he wanted to do it, because he needed to work, and they thought, well, maybe he'll last, he'll live longer if he works, because he'd be stressed. If he didn't work, he'd be going crazy. But on the other hand, I think his wife now feels, we, I saw her in January in Florida, and she certainly feels that it wasn't worth it. That's not in the book now, because that's after the fact. Right. But it was, uh, you know, she lost her husband, and her kids lost their father, and he just had a new grandchild. And so, you know, it's... Um, it's really the story of somebody who was never satisfied, somebody who was never content, who, who, who needed to keep doing it, to keep proving himself. Well, actually, considering his tumultuous adolescence uh, and teenage years, it was a drastic shift uh, to go from a kid who fooled around frequently to the no-nonsense workhorse he became. Yeah. How did that shift in behavior occur? I think he, you know, he would describe it as a s significant emotional event. He said, people's behavior change, changes when um, a person experiences a significant emotional event. And the significant emotional event for Hunter Harrison was the birth of his first child. 
when he was still a teenager. And he realized at that point, okay, he wasn't the kid anymore. He had a kid. And it was one thing for him to you know, mess around and be, be irresponsible. But now he had the responsibility for a child. And so he, he told me on a few occasions, that's when he decided he had to man up. And um, I think also it was concurrent with him clicking at the railroad. I can do this. This is something I can figure out. This is something I, I can succeed at. And so, you know, it's a lot more fun, I think, to be successful than to be a screw-up. And he certainly liked being successful. And the, um, you know, what comes back to you when you are successful? You know, the praise, in his case, also the money, uh, the awards, the... Yeah, the attention, the headlines, you know, I think, you know, that that fed him, and, and the sense of accomplishment of running these companies better than somebody else. You know, it was, um, he took pride in that, and he, he also felt that everybody should take pride in what they did. Uh, he, you know, he was famous for saying in these so-called hunter camps, which were um, very, very special retreats that were run at Canadian National, and then he did a few at CSX before he died. There were weekend long retreats where he'd bring in, you know, mid-level people from around the railroad and teach them how to railroad better and teach them how to be leaders. And I remember, you know, I, I watched 22 hours of one of these things on DVD and, you know, him just talking. It was unbelievable. And, you know, at one point he said to these people in the room, don't let them you know, don't let them just be worker bees, because that's what you'll get. Just care. And it was so important for him that people cared. If you cared, if you put in the extra effort, if you showed the initiative or exhibited a desire to learn, even if you were the lowest level em employee, he'd spend time with you. Like he did with Keith Creel, you know, who was a train master like he was. And, you know, wouldn't let him quit the company to go to work for Burlington Northern. And, you know, he kept him there, moved him around. Hunter moved 18 times, although he didn't really ever move to Jacksonville. He, you know, that's where CSX is, but he'd fly in and out. He'd be running that company, as I described in the book, in his pajamas, house coat, and slippers from the office in his house in Florida or his house in Connecticut. I'd be sitting there and he'd be in his pajamas and you know it was and there I was like it was so close up which was um, a phenomenal experience for you know somebody writing a book not to mention all the other people you know that surrounded him who talked to me. We know that Hunter believed that railroads made economies. You mentioned uh, that Hunter kind of clicked with railroads. But why did he become so passionate about railroading specifically? And especially about the numbers. Uh, considering his rocky relationship with schooling, why was he such a fan of the railroad, and why was that his passion? You know, he wasn't particularly uh, attracted to that industry. He was not 
a model train collector um, or you know somebody who was a train buff or anything they call them foamers um, <clears throat> he went there you know because he was working at a bakery that paid 50 cents an hour and the railroad paid two dollars an hour and it just he just happened to click there it was about the money from the beginning well, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was about the money from the beginning, but it became something else. Right. It became a passion because he thought, I can do this. I can, you know, I can make a future here um, because I can, you know, I can run these things better than other people. And uh, so it became a passion, just like show jumping in the horse world became a passion, or golf became a passion. And he was fantastic at all of those things. You know, he didn't do things in half measure. He, he strove for excellence in whatever he did. And, uh, you know, I remember when, you know, uh, we were starting, uh, you know, I was starting to interview him for the book, and uh, uh, he said, uh, I don't want no half-ass book. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I was planning to do. You know, so, <laughs> so I don't know what author would. Yeah, so like yeah. I'm gonna phone <laughs> Anyway, I mean, I could go on and on about things he said. But do you think he would have been successful in another industry then? I think he might have been. Yeah, as successful, I guess, as we're well. I, that's uh, you know, obviously hypothetical and speculative. But I think back to uh, the the book about Charles Bronfman, and his dad was Sam Bronfman, who made Seagram into this, you know, global liquor dynasty, uh, juggernaut, and then they, you know, they had, they had the biggest shareholding in DuPont as well. They were just in a, you know, huge concern. And Charles had this view of his dad, Sam, that he was such a good business person he knew things in granular detail about that business, just like Hunter knew things in granular detail about railroads. As, you know, all these guys, you know, even Buzz Hargrove, who headed up the union here, said you couldn't bullshit him, you know. And, and that's what Charles said about his dad. You couldn't bullshit him because he knew the business better than anybody. And Charles said to me, you know, my father could have been successful in any business, to your question. So maybe Hunter could have run a you know, a trucking company or a power company or, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, I don't know, a widget company for all I know. Because he, you know, he, he had that questioning mind, which is sort of the, the core of figuring something out. And so business is figuring something out and, you know, and, and packaging it and selling it. And truth be told that there was times when I was reading the book that I actually forgot it was about railroads. You know, his principles would seem agnostic of the industry at times, right? right. You'd remember because you'd hear every so often a boxcar or a rail or an engine start right. or something or freight, yeah. right? Right. But oftentimes, like you said, it was about doing the right thing the most efficient way possible and investing in your people. And right. you know, these are things that are not necessarily specific to railroading per se. Granted, they made a huge difference. Yeah. But you know, nothing about that tells me this is railroading. And so you're right. I mean, it's a hypothetical, but it seems a very likely one, maybe. Do you think he worked people too hard? I know there are stories in the book about uh, not just Keith Creel, uh, but you also had Peter Edwards and yeah. kind of their incidents. Do you think he worked them too hard? At, at well, like, you know, these two examples, Keith Creel, he developed, um, I'm forgetting what it's called, like a facial paralysis. Uh, yes, Bell's, Bell's palsy. palsy. Yeah, mm -hmm. thanks. 
And um, Peter Edwards, who was a, an HR executive, human resources executive, both CN and CP, um, you know, he would, <laughs> I think I described in the book where he would, if Hunter called and he was in his car and he didn't have a note paper, he'd pull his shoe off and he'd write on the insole yeah. of his shoe. I mean, you know, these guys walked through walls for Harrison and he developed some heart problems, you know. So Hunter himself got sick on the job, you know, in his late 50s, needed needed uh, bypass surgery, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, uh, needed to be carried out of the CN boardroom, uh, flown to Chicago for surgery. So, um, yeah, probably did work people too hard. Um, but, you know, there are people who... Um, wanted to succeed like him and uh, they bought in and a lot of them have done very well for themselves so that's a choice people make and um, you know uh, uh, it's not for everybody for sure but uh, he had a lot of disciples as, and detractors and and to be fair, I mean, we say too hard. That's again subjective, right? Mm. To him, it's not. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and obviously, made him a CEO, not of just one company, but four separate companies in the yeah. same industry, some of which are competitors. So again, this yeah. is completely unheard of. I've never heard of this in my life. <laughs> but what made him so different from other CEOs, as we mentioned at the beginning, this is not something that even the most senior of executives or most talented people you hear of that are part of the history books, they don't even do this. What made him so special? Well, I think, A, that he thought for himself. As I said, he had his questioning mind. Fiercely determined. Needed to prove something to himself, to others, it seemed. Um... Uh, and I'll go back to what I said before. He had the willingness to do unpopular things. Uh, there are not a lot of people who are, you know, who can take that. Because, you know, you get death threats. You know, there are people out there who want you to fail who don't like you. And most of us want to be liked. And I think probably a lot of major CEOs want to be liked too. I mean, in part, you know, once you get to that level, they're running companies, but they're also quasi-political figures. Right. Uh, because, you know, they have to be public and, and uh, you know, put on a happy face at dinners and, and all of those kinds of things. Uh, you know, Hunter was not so concerned with the optics. I mean, he he liked the limelight, and he could entertain in a, at a dinner better than anybody. But he didn't suck up to anybody, particularly politicians. And he was willing to say no to customers, which not a lot of CEOs are willing to do. Right. You know, it's like the customers always, always right. right. Yeah, no, he, not his opinion. Yeah, and and he didn't think the customer was always right. Like you said, a customer probably said that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Steve Jobs, uh, echoing the Steve Jobs film. So I think that's probably what uh, distinguished him. And, and, you know, just this ability to understand that business better than anybody, you know, that gives you a huge 
huge leg up. But if I could maybe just press you on that a bit, because I think the latter half of your answer is fair. The beginning piece where we're talking about you know being determined, um, knowing his business well, wanting to prove something. This I would say is maybe to some extent a common trait among senior executives sure. or CEOs. But you maybe think it was the the magnitude or the order of magnitude to which you know he kind of held himself to those principles, like just completely you know, focused and belligerent when it comes to trying to reach a goal? Like, do you think it was just that determination, tenacity? Like that do or die mentality. Yeah, yeah. I think you're on to something. And, um, you know, at one point I kind of compared him to Tom Brady, right. um, you know, who's got this unbelievable track record. But there's also a lot of people don't like Tom Brady. Uh, you know, it, it just... And, and, you know, Ackman, I mean, they, 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 again, they came, Hunter and Ackman, Bill Ackman, the, the activist Cheryl, came from totally different worlds. But both, like, just, you know, dogs with a bone, you know, they just would not stop. You know, I just, activist shareholders, they're like guys with drills out in the pavement, and they don't stop until they get what they want. And Hunter would not stop until he got what he wanted. You know, there was just that, that, um, that was his personality. I think that's fair. And, you know? um, and I think that's a fair description of him as a CEO. But how would you describe his philosophy in running his companies? How, how could you surmise that, if, if possible? Philosophy in running his companies. Well, I mean, obviously there was the precision scheduled railroading. Mm -hmm. The hunter camps. The hunter camps, which was, a, you know, um, an attempt to change the culture at these companies and, and make people, give people the latitude to make decisions but be accountable. You know, I, I think for him it was, um, it was culture. It was a, a, a sense of, you know, the, 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 the precision scheduled railroading was one thing. But I think he always felt that it was the culture and the leadership abilities throughout the company that made the difference. You know, where you had somebody who cared. You know, somebody who was maybe five, six rungs below him in the organizational chart, but was out there running the company or, or you know, running their part of the company in a proprietary way. You know, like when I hosted the show at BNN. You know, I was there for 15 years. And, you know, the, the, the program that I hosted, I felt like it was kind of the family store. You know, I, I, I felt proprietary about it. Right. And I, you know, I wasn't running a railroad, and it was a very small unit relative to a, a ZN or ZP, but... I wanted the people on the team to care. It was your baby. Stuff mattered. It was my baby. Like, we're doing this. We're not coming here to do some, you know, half-assed thing. This is a service. And, you know, the railroad's a service. That interview program was a service. We had people who, you know, watched the show and relied on it for information, credible information. We you know, I took it seriously. And he took the running of the railroad very seriously. And he expected everybody at the railroad, right down to the mailroom, right down to, you know, a person pouring oil in, to take it seriously. We were, you know, and, and I think it comes back to ownership. When I said proprietary, 
uh, I'll use the word ownership, because he said, you know, we're working for the shareholders. They own the company. And a lot of the people working on the railroad, including him, had a piece of it. This is our company. Run it like your company. Treat it like your company. It'll do better. And so, you know, to that point, you said he changed the culture all the way from the corner office down to the mailroom. But, you know, you talk to somebody in the mailroom, and this is, you know, not to their detriment or anything, but just not everybody really necessarily cares about those things, about shareholders, about You're right. shareholder value. So then the question then for me remains, how did he manage to affect that kind of cultural change throughout an organization, throughout all the ranks when, I mean, the hunter camps you talk about are really for the management and the leadership. So how do you think he managed not to Not necessarily that? high leadership, but, right. but you know, mid-level. Right. Yeah. But how do you think he just got that through the entire organization? And I mean, even if it's to talk about one of the changes or all? Well, he sent messages, uh, very strong messages, uh, often through his actions, things he said, stories he told. He told stories. That's how he imparted his wisdom. And, and he was a great storyteller. Uh, he would had, had a story for everything, and that's how he taught. He was a, a preacher and a teacher. And that's how he taught, through stories. And he had a story for everything. But there were incidents that reverberated through the company, like the mailroom, for instance. You know, he'd go in and you know, he'd see the, com the computer in the box on the scale, and he'd bark at the woman running the mailroom. Where's that going? Well, it's going over to the yard across town. By FedEx? <laughs> You're sending, do you know where that when you send it by FedEx, do you know where that box goes from Calgary to get to the other side of Calgary? It goes through Memphis. <laughs> Just happens he was from Memphis, right. but FedEx, Memphis company. Uh, and, and so, you know, he'd scare the hell out of that person. Well, he means business, you know, and, and, and then it would, you know, that message would reverberate through the company or he'd get on the, you know, if the, the network was gummed up in the middle of the night, he'd call up the dispatcher in Illinois and say, what's going on? Because he'd monitor these things from his home, the screens. And he said, well, I'll play dispatcher tonight. And you, you know. Go to the hotel, you, I think. Right? You, you stay with me. I'll, I'll, I'll be dispatcher tonight. So all the CEO of the company is playing dispatcher to unclog the railroad all night long. He's pulling an all-nighter. Well, that gets around. Right. That's you not know, something you see every day. You got a message board in the company. You know, you should have seen what happened last night. And who was, you know, the fire-breathing dragon who was here last night. <laughs> you know, and, 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 but by the way, I learned a few things from him. I learned how, you know, how to ungum the railroad last night from this guy. So um, I suppose that's what ultimately made him endearing, even though he had such rough edges. Yeah, yeah. You know, people who get pounded by him, I don't mean physically, but I mean verbally, or, you know, uh, uh, there's a guy named Tony Marcus, I quote in the book, he's senior VP now of Canadian Pacific, Eastern Region, and he talks about being, you know, flying up to Montreal. He'd worked for him at CN, too. And, you know, how he'd wanted to expand Brampton and and Hunter's you know, freaked out, basically. And what do you got to expand it for? Well, you just run more capacity. You know, we like be more efficient, you know, and then you create capacity by being more efficient. You don't need 
five, ten million dollars for me to build a bigger terminal or whatever. And so Tony said, I left that meeting. He said, I'm quoting him here, he said he beat the shit out of me, but he didn't demotivate me. I learned from him. And so, uh, you know, you, you either bought into it or you didn't. And there are pe to your point, um, there are people who just want to work nine to five. And then they, you know, they don't want to move 18 times like Hunter Harrison did. And they, you know, they want to have a different life. And so it didn't work for everybody. Do you think it doesn't work for everybody. Do you think those people uh, may have misinterpreted his culture as a culture of fear? Uh, well, it was labeled that. Um, and he would always dispute it. He would call it a culture of con consequence. Uh, there was reward and there was consequence. And you motivated people with reward and you also may have motivated people with consequence. Uh, these were the significant emotional events that I referred to earlier. That's when you know, people get the point in his view. All right, so this was a very interesting read for both of us and pretty much whoever picks up this book, I doubt you'll be able to put it down for very long because it's like- good I, to like, hear. No, no, it, truly, it was a, as we're talking about one guy here. Yeah. And one guy who affected the lives of so many different people. What is that lasting effect you think he's had on you? What do you think it is about maybe your perspective or even you personally that's changed or altered because of your experience with him? You know, you can always do better. He believed that, and he said that to people. You can always stretch. Peop you know, most people, he said, people, um, most people are better than they think they are. They can achieve more than they think they can achieve. I think those are, you know, and do the right thing. He really believed in doing the right thing. He was honest to a fault. Sometimes he was so honest it was to his detriment because he'd, you know, say things in your face, you know. But, but you know, he... He was an honest person, and uh, you know what he thought was the right thing was not necessarily what other people thought was the right thing. But he genuinely believed he was doing the right thing, and, and I think he he believed you could always do better. And so uh, that's the part I think uh, that I'll you know remember. And to be honest, that's one of the things that actually stuck with me. I know earlier we asked you know what made him so different as a CEO. Um, but the one thing that stuck with me is actually what you're saying right now. You know, I think towards the end you say that, you know, good leaders or good managers will do things right, but he did the right thing. Leaders do, yeah. Managers do things right. right. Leaders do the right thing. Exactly. And that, that really resonated because it was this one picture in that book where I think he's, manage, uh, he's managing his kids' uh, soccer team. And you put a little, a little caption there saying that he went to the library. Sorry, it's a footnote. You went to the library. He checked out all the books he could find on soccer. and Because he knew nothing Because he knew soccer. nothing. But I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I almost thought of him because of the way I was reading it. And he was so just, you know, sing, singular focus on railroads. All in. Yeah, I thought he would, that's all he cared about. But no, what he really cared about was just doing things the right way. And I mean, you show that through his, you know, show horses and the golfing and everything else that he did. But I mean, that really stuck with me because like, that's early on. You know, he was a young guy there and he's still, you know, for something that clearly he didn't care much for. But he cared because of something he was doing. He just, like you said, he had to yeah. do it to yeah. the highest degree he could. Uh, I'm going to ask, I guess, maybe this question to aptly end this, um, this wonderful interview. Do you think that Hunter Harrison's journey with CSX and pretty much working himself all the way till his death, do you think that was, it was always going to end up 
that way? That his journey was always going to be a person who worked till, till the death of him? Is that something that, based off of who he was, was always going to happen, no matter all the difficulties that preceded? Well, it's what did happen. So I can only assume it's what would have happened. Um, we only know what did happen. Uh, can't really predict the future or speculate what could have or been. Or speculate about what could have been. Uh, but, uh, and if he hadn't taken the job, you know, whether he would have passed away sooner because he was not happy. So th those are all kind of uh, hypotheticals that uh, I can't answer. I only know what did happen, and he worked pretty much to the end. But he was happy doing it. Yeah, yeah, because he was seeing results. And I think, you know, you're right, it's a hypothetical, but I think if we go for an educated guess, I believe in the book you also say one of the doctors told him, you know, give him a broken rear load every five years and he'll live forever. <laughs> right? So guys like that, they don't quit. Yeah. They no. they work till they die. I, I, that's just my opinion. I know we asked you, and I know the the fair answer is to not comment. But uh, with my lack of education, I'm gonna throw it out there and say that you know what? I think he would honestly have worked till he died, and he did. And we're blaming your book pretty much for that opinion. I think it's <laughs> like, <laughs> if we got it from anywhere, it's your book for convincing us of that. But I think I, I agree. I don't think he would have had it any other way. Um, and it's your podcast, so you guys could. For say what See we what want to do. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, thank you so much, Howard, for joining us to talk about uh, Railroader. As always, for those listening, Howard's books do two things. One, they explain the title topic, which whether it be about how TD delved into the American market or the life of Hunter Harrison, the rail the railroading CEO. But the second objective, personally, seems to be objecting, in my opinion, seems to be providing the reader with an all-access pass to the industry they discuss as well as a comprehensive look at the life of corporate and the decision makers involved. So if you ever wonder what happens behind the scenes at a CEO level, uh, if you know nothing about railroading, this book, along with Howard's other novels, are for you. Thank you so much, Howard, for discussing this book with us. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks again, Howard. I'll be honest, man. I didn't really care about railroads before this interview, outside of Monopoly, of course. But this book used a human story to make me learn about their importance in our country. Yeah, and I especially felt motivated about the part where Hunter would say, keep working hard and be like a dog with a bone with anything you do. I agree. Hearing that part made us work even harder on this podcast because it reminds us to view it like a service, like our own company, and to take ownership with anything we do. So it made us appreciate the journey that much more. And we thank you, our listeners, for joining us on that journey as well. Don't forget to follow our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates. Feel free to share your comments with us, and if there are any future topics that you'd like us to explore, please let us know. Finally, if you like what we discussed today, feel free to share it with family and friends. We truly appreciate the support. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Real Talk Roundtable.